And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our very special guest. He has traveled all the way from Borneo to be with us today in studio. He is Ronnie Habor of Living Waters Village. Information, by the way, about the ministry online at livingwatersvillage.com. That's livingwatersvillage.com. The story of what God is doing in this part of the world is detailed inside the pages of a new book that Ronnie has co-authored with Pastor Don Sheely from Church of the Highlands called Miracle Zone in the Jungles of of Borneo, and the book again available online by going to livingwatersvillage.com. Ronnie, I would imagine some listening might think, boy, it, it, it takes enough faith to step out and say, we're going to leave the comfort of home in Australia, the western part of the world, we're going to head down to Borneo in those early days to do what? beyond share the gospel it really wasn't a clear picture how god was going to facilitate all of this the resources all of these myriad of of questions that were yet unanswered now here you are 20 years later people would say it must have taken just enough faith to be able to decide to to yield to god and be obedient to travel from australia to borneo now in the ensuing years to have watched god bring about miracle after miracle after miracle. In the early days, you rescued just a handful of kids. Now I understand that Living Waters Village has over a thousand children in it. Not, not quite yet, but we're moving towards that, yes. Heading toward over yes. a th- nearly a thousand children. You have a school there. It's, it, and it's a self-sufficient uh, facility as well, is it not, in terms of being able to we're provide a lot on of that as well. Right? Not but quite yet, but we're working on that. <laughs> it's amazing to see what God has done and the lessons that you have learned in terms of, of reliance upon him and further surrender to him must absolutely be amazing. Well, yes, yeah, I, I don't look at it that way. I just look at it, God is God. So for some people, they, they marvel at, you know, how come you have so much faith? And I think, well, how come you don't have so much faith? If you truly say that you, that you are a Christian and that you are his disciple, then, okay, well, then he's, he's, your, he's your God. He's your Is the answer to that question a lot like the guy that works out in the gym? We know one guy, big muscle and, and buffed, and, and we go, wow, how come you have so many muscles? And looks to the other guy who does and say, well, how come you don't? And, and the difference between the two is one exercises and the other one does not. Is this a matter of exercising one's faith, that, that we grow our faith by exercising our faith? Well, I think, yeah, I think um, the relationship that you have with God, of course, is that you want to know God more and more, right? I mean, we are really, uh, let's face it, we only know God just a little bit, sure. really, of who He is. So, so then your your relationship with God, the time that you spend with Him, and the, and the desire to know Him more and more, of course, then God is is God, and He will hear your prayers and answer your prayers, and so He will help you with that. And so it's just like your best friend. So you you He's there all the time. He never lets you down, and so you just know that he'll come through. He says he doesn't say, "Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to call you to do this, but I'd like to see you do it." You know, I'd like to see you uh, um, uh, raise those kids, and and that. Of course, he doesn't do that. He's, he's he gives you a task, and he always gives you the resources. But we've got to step out of faith because we've got to completely trust in him. It is not a matter of. He'll give everything in our hands and therefore, uh, okay, now go and do the job because then you don't require faith. That's right. So he, he gives you a task to do, knowing full well that you can't 
do it on your own, and if you do try and do it on your own, you're going to just make a mess of it, you really need him. So do you really want um, him t- uh, to be with you all that time? Yes, you do. I mean, I know that, and I say it to my leaders over there as well. You know, this place always, Jesus has to be the head of this place, and he, we always have to be totally dependent and reliant on him for everything. So that's how I want it. I don't want it to turn into an institution. I don't want us, us to figure it all out. I don't want us to have it all sorted out and have it worked out and have it all planned and all that because then we don't need faith anymore. I mean, God still has to do his miracles here. We still have to believe that he's the one who's doing this. He's in charge. And isn't it that that matter of God doing those miracles and seeing him demonstrating his love and his power and his anointing on a, on a day-to-day basis that makes the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ so, so incredibly real and attractive to the very people that you're trying to reach? Absolutely. Absolutely. And... You know, certain people can will come to the Lord with um, um, very little faith, right? So other people need to, other people need to see a miracle in order to be able to. Um, well, I think I think of, of many of the scenes that we see of the first century church, even within the Book of Acts, we see amazing stories take place, yeah. amazing movements of God, demonstration of acts of faith. And on the heels of those events, almost without exception, here comes news that the word of what God did spread aboundly, and many people came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because of seeing the power of God moving amongst them. So I I guess in that regard, we're still seeing God work and move amongst his people in a very similar fashion even today, aren't we? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But unfortunately, a lot of Christians don't believe that anymore. People say to me here in the West, uh, how come God does always miracles there in Borneo or in Africa or somewhere else like that and he doesn't do it here? And I go, well, just listen to yourself. You just say yourself you don't even believe in miracles anymore and you, you want God to do a miracle now here. But you're not, you're not even, even if he did, just like the people in Jesus' time, even right in front of their eyes he will do a miracle and still they'll crucify him. They didn't believe in him anymore. I mean, you still have people like that today. So, but you do, uh, there are there are instances where God has done an incredible, wonderful miracle at our place, and as a result, people have come to the Lord. We've had uh, young kids and, and uh, teenagers come to us as sick as anything. Uh, you've got to understand the whole culture there. Uh, there's a witch doctor in every, every tribe, every village. They have their own witch doctor who lords it over the people. So he holds the power over the people and puts great fear in the people. So um, lots of uh, – just recently, I'll, I'll share with you, a while ago we had uh, – a meeting with all our kids and uh, I just felt that the Holy Spirit was saying you know um, uh, just just ask them this and I said who of you have got a grandmother or grandfather who was a witch doctor in this place you know that are still alive or maybe they've passed away already I said who, who, who had a grandmother or grandfather a lot of kids put up their hands I said come forward he said you stand over there we're going to pray for you in a minute I said and who of you have had a father or mother that were or still are a witch doctor and a number of kids put up their hands and I said, you come forward, you stand over there, we're going to pray for you. I said, now how many of you guys actually are supposed to be the next witch doctor? And a number of kids put up their hands and I was really shocked at this. And I said, do you want to be the witch doctor? And they go, no, we want to serve Jesus. I said, okay, well, let's, we need to break this over your life now then, you know, this hereditary thing that you've been passed from one generation mm-hmm. to the other. And so we need, we're going to break that in Jesus' name. And so we did, and we, we prayed for them all, and we broke these things over their, over their uh, lives. And then this young girl came up to me, and she says, Pa, she said, I don't think Jesus can save me. So why do you say that? 
She goes, because when I was a baby, I was already offered to the spirit world by the witch doctor. I was placed in his hands and he lifted me up to the spirit world. And so I belong to the spirit world. I don't think Jesus can save me. I said, well, I've got news for you. He sure can save you. That's why he brought you here, so that he can break this over your life, break this curse over your life, so that you know, so that you will know that you are a child of the Most High God. So we prayed for her there, there and then with all of us. She started to cry and... And uh, after a while, she started to laugh. But after that, she knew that, 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 you know, this over her life was broken and that she knew she was a child of the Most High God and God had a plan and a purpose for her life now. And then this young fellow came up to me. He says, Pop, he said, my dad is a witch doctor. And uh, he said, uh, many years ago, uh, we had this guy come into our village and uh, my father grabbed a knife and he was a guy we didn't know. He grabbed the knife and he stabbed him there to death, saying that he was the enemy. And he said, and then he dragged the body uh, to the middle of the village and put him in a drum uh, of water and uh, boiled him there in the, in, the, in the middle of the village. And everybody had to come out. Everybody had to view this. The little kids, the big kids, every, all the adults have all had to. And, he, and if the witch doctor says, you do this, then you better do that. Because if you don't, you dis- if you're disobedient to the witch doctor, then he places a curse upon your life. And they fear that more than anything. So everybody viewed this. This guy being boiled there. And then when he was boiled enough, then the witch doctor said, okay, you eat now. So everybody had to eat some of this guy. I mean, when he was sharing that with me, I thought, oh, my goodness. I would have never thought by just looking at this kid that he had already been through some of this sort of stuff. And um, then uh, because they believe that if they eat some of the the enemy's meat and drink some of their blood that they receive the sakti, they call, uh, which is super. They become supernaturally stronger than their enemy. And uh, if they do go through this ritual, and then I thought, oh God, I just I am just so so grateful that you called KME so many years ago to come to this place to build this place in the middle of nowhere, so that these kids and young people can come here and be rescued from this this evil demonic uh, uh, area that they're in. You know that there is a a place of refuge, a place of of, of rescue here for them. You know, and I just then I thought, you know. God, I'm just so grateful that we listened to you, that we were obedient to you. Because if we hadn't have done that, this wouldn't have taken place here right now today. You know, these kids would have been still lost. And uh, and so I thought, God, you know, for all of us, all Christians throughout the world, how important it is to be obedient to God. Because if we're not, there's always others who are going to miss out as a result of our disobedience. I don't know how you feel about that, Greg, but I don't know. I just couldn't stand in... You know, uh, knowing that uh, later on when we stand in front of God's throne, that I should have and I never did. I get people come to me now and say, Pastor Ronnie, can you please pray for me? Because 10 years ago, God called me to do this and I never did because I just was too afraid or I or, or, or I, I chose to go my own way. And, and uh, But God has never, ever, I still remember that every day I should have listened. And yes, you should have. Why didn't you? You know, God will take you on a... Go on a merry-go-round if you if you don't listen. He will take you back to the same spot. Come on, guys. You should be doing what I've asked you to do because other people are going to miss out otherwise. And you'll never have a sense of true satisfaction. You'll always, I think, be unsettled in your spirit Absolutely. if you're not obedient to exactly what it is that God has called you to do. And Even he, if it seems to be the most bizarre, strangest stretch of the imagination that you could never imagine yourself going there or doing this, yet whom God calls, he prepares and 
and he equips and he will bless if you're obedient. At this juncture, let's pause in our conversation. If you've just joined us on this edition of Lifeline, our conversation today with Ronnie Habor, who is with us from Borneo. He's from Living Waters Ministries. A brief time out, back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. If you've tuned in a bit late, a very special guest joins us today in studio. He is Ronnie Habor of Living Waters Ministries. He and Pastor Don Sheely from Church of the Highlands have written a new book, The Amazing Story of What God is Doing in Borneo, the book called Miracle Zone in the Jungles of Borneo. Now, Pastor Ronnie, just prior to the break, we were talking a bit about some of the, the impact and the influence of witchcraft and the occult in Borneo. Tell us more about that. We had one young fella came to us and uh, he was very much in the occult and his whole family and in fact the whole village there uh, we tried two years to plant a church there and I remember the first time I went into the village there and we we slept overnight there and um, I was under a mosquito net and I was sleeping but in my sleep uh, it was as if um, somebody had a hand on my throat and was choking me and I couldn't breathe anymore In fact, I couldn't breathe in my sleep, so I I woke up as a result of this, and I sat up on the floor there under my mosquito net, and I couldn't breathe because I felt this hand on my neck. Actually, it was real. And so I just couldn't breathe, and I couldn't say anything, and all of a sudden I shouted out, Jesus, and straight away the hand left me. And I realized that the, the demonic forces here were very powerful. And that place there, it was just such a blanket of evilness over the entire area there. And uh, this young fellow eventually from this area, uh, from the Matei tribe, um, he, they brought this young fellow who had, to be, uh, who had um, typhoid, uh, already quite advanced typhoid, to our place. And we put him in hospital. And then as a result, uh, he really got, went from bad to worse. And uh, we gave him all the medication and all that. But anyway, he needed uh, a blood transfusion, which we didn't have. We sent him off to uh, cut a long story short. We, get, we got him this operation eventually after a couple of uh, weeks and uh, he, he he came through, he pulled through and uh, came to our place a couple of weeks later weighing only 30 kilos, walked in my door, he fell on his knees and he says, Parani, what do I do in order to receive this Jesus? He came to me in a vision. He showed me that he's the one that I should be following. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this, this fella called Nuno, he... Um, we brought him back to health. He had huge bed sores. He could put your whole fist in there. I didn't think that they were ever going to heal, and yet they were completely healed after a while. And he, he was fattened up because he weighed only 30 kilos. And once he was, after six months, he was as good as gold. He was uh, as fattened up a bit. And uh, then I said, it's, it's time for you to go back to your village. And he goes, I want to. He said, I have something to share with them. So we took him back to his village, and he, in his own tribal language, shared the gospel message to his entire family, neighbors, everybody in the village there. And as a result, because in the beginning they didn't even believe that it was him, but they realized he had a cataract eye. They could see that it was him and a couple of tattoos that he had. But he was just such a different young fella. He was glowing with the Spirit of God upon him. you know. And as a result of him sharing in his own tribal language to his family, neighbors, and the people in their village, so many people that day come to the Lord as a result of him sharing. And uh, now if you go back, you know, there's, there's this blanket of, of an open heaven there. I mean, I mean, there's such a contrast, such a difference there today. And his brother, his older brother, who was so in the occult as well, 
He's now the pastor of his church there. So awesome to see. And that's why I say, God, you know, through miracles, the people will see the miracles that are being performed by the Lord and will believe the Lord as a result. I mean, I know some people need to see that. Others people, well, whatever you say, I believe it, you know. And uh, they, they are saved. But others, through a power encounter, they will be convinced. And, then and they start as a doubting Thomas, and then once yeah. having seen, okay, I put my finger in the side of your flesh, and now I believe. So we've got witch doctors now that have come to the Lord as a result of some of these miracles that have taken place. And, and they're miracles, that not you know uh, things that are falling out of the sky or anything, but, but just praying for people. You know, I saw my people come to my kids when they were so wounded in hospital, and they laid their hands on my children and said, Child of God, in the name of Jesus, be healed. And miraculously, my kids got healed. Now, I always thought, well, if they can do it, they're Christian, they can do it. So can we then. So when we were in, in the villages here uh, ministering to these people, and one of the witch doctors, uh, uh, his daughter was uh, sick with meningitis, was so badly sick. And we laid our hands on her and we just said, child of God in the, in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. And uh, she didn't get healed straight away, but that evening she was healed. And the witch doctor then realized that his power is no match to mm. his God's power. And he came to the Lord, and as a result, he's now an ambassador for Jesus Christ. He's helped us plant three other churches in the region there, telling everybody about how great this and how powerful this God is compared to the power of the witch doctors. So, looking back over this experience, 21 years now, what would you say, if you think back to where you were at in your faith, in your day-to-day walk with Christ as you were leaving Australia to go to Borneo and then seeing what God has done. If you quickly just played that, that tape, that film back in your mind, Ronnie, what do you think are some of the, the biggest or most critical lessons that you've learned about the character of God that you think would be beneficial to share with our listeners? Um, I think I think when we say we believe, I think a lot of problems, a lot of people have a difficulty with that. What does that mean, believe? I mean, there are so many people that say they believe in God. But when I look at the example of their lifestyle, I don't think they really understand who God is. God wants us to know him intimately. He wants us to have that relationship. He can't build a relationship with somebody if you never spend time with so that them. That really is the key difference. I mean, I, I believe that there's a president in Washington, D.C., and I've seen him on television, and I believe that he exists, but I do not have a relationship with him, and I cannot say that I know him because I don't have a relationship with him. Yeah. Same thing when we, when we speak of God? Absolutely. And, uh, and so you, you've got to be able to spend time with him. You've got to be able to spend, you know, and a lot of people say, well, how do you do I mean, I, I, I just think that's strange sometimes when Christians ask that, but in a way I, I understand as well. But so many people don't read the Word of God. You know, I, I just found out some statistics just before, a couple of months ago, that 80-something percent of Christians throughout the world don't read the Word of God, or once a month maybe. And I think, well, how does that work? I mean, I don't understand. You want a relationship with God? You want to? They ask me, they say to me, God never speaks to me. Are you, well, hello, are you reading the Word of God? God never speaks to me. I never hear from God or or God never shows me a vision. Well, are you hungry for God? Are you seriously wanting to know Him? Then read the Word of God. Pray, seek His face. Hunger after Him. 
David was characterized as a man who had a heart after God. And clearly that passion has to be followed up by immersion into God's word and into prayer and engaging in that faith walk that's willing to step out beyond the borders of my comfort level, beyond the things that I know I have control over. You spoke earlier of the fact that um, at the point at which you were preparing to leave um, Australia for Borneo, that you had a home that was paid off, you had money in the bank, that those kinds of things that we tend to sort of gather around us that give us a sense of, of safety and security. If something happens, I have a fallback plan. To step beyond all of that and say, here I am. There is no safety net. There is no fallback plan. The only thing that I have to rely on and in which to put my trust is very God himself, nothing more. I think that's the point at which we begin seeing God do the miraculous in our lives because we're willing to to surrender enough of ourselves that God can say, okay, now that you have begun to trust me a little let me show you ways in which you can begin to trust me a lot. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, that's true, exactly. And and God will give you those opportunities. Then you see, it doesn't just happen. You know, um, you, you got to take it, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, if you're asking for something, then you know, I often ask God, give me the experiences that I need to have in order to be able to grow in you. I mean, otherwise, how am I? How am I going to know? You know, uh, I, Even to the point of spiritual warfare, and, you, and you've touched on this topic around the periphery, you're ha- going to have to understand that as you march into that spiritual warfare, you, you, you've got to go and you've got to reclaim that territory. The Bible goes as far yeah. as to say we have to take it by force, we have to take it with violence in, in, in the spiritual realm. And a lot of people are afraid to go out and do that. We, we expect you know, God is going to move and we just want to sit back yeah. with our arms yeah. folded and watch God to move and somehow we're going to be swept up in all of that. Yeah. When so often, at least this has been my faith walk experience, as much as we say we're praying and waiting upon God, God, the reality is that God is really waiting upon us. You know, and I think the other thing is that a lot of people question God about everything. And I think, I think if once people start to question God about everything, then it shows them really their level of faith. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know... Also some confusion about the sovereignty of God. Yeah, you don't need to know everything. I've learned over the years that... Look, God is God, and so he does it the way he wants to do it. And so, I mean, it's like with my first wife when she died. She'd just become a Christian 18 months before. So after World War Three at our place, you know, I became a Christian way, way before that. And when I became a Christian, all these problems came in my house rather than were solved. You, you, you know, were so, gone and she thought you were crazy. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> so, so um, but then I realized I don't need to know every. If, if, if I've surrendered my life to God, then God is the one who will lead my... I want God to lead my life. You know, I want Him to lead me by His Holy Spirit. And so I don't need to know everything. I don't need to know why He does what He does. He is God, and I trust in Him completely. And um, and I'm sure, um, because He's my dad, that he, that he nothing will happen to me without His permission. You know, so I'm, one of my kids, or one of the local kids there a couple of years ago said to me, Dad, it's three times now I've dreamt that they were going to shoot you. I said, no one's going to shoot me. No enemy's going to shoot me. I said, uh, um, without God's permission. I said, without God. I'm not saying that, he, that I'm not going to be shot. I'm just saying without his permission. God will decide when it's my last day. I believe that if we're in the will of God, then he decides when it's our last day, not the enemy. So 
Um, but we need to, you know, it's up to him. Um, he calls us to do certain tasks and he gives us all the resources when we believe that and we step out in faith. He gives us all the resources that we need, that we require in order to complete the task. We don't have to doubt God for that. We know that he will do that in his timing. Sometimes we think God's a little bit slow. You know, we'll have to remind him now and again, but all that. But again, that's also a, a, a time of of, of uh, our faith growing, testing our faith to see where we're at with all that. But um, uh, God is there. He loves us immensely and he wants to use us and he does if we allow him to, if we surrender to him. And so don't need to question God about everything. I mean, there's a lot of things. I often say, you know, I don't understand why God does, why he took my wife or why he does this, why he does that. Why does God heal one person when we pray for them in Jesus' name and the other one not? We've, I've got children in my place. God has touched their kidneys. Their, their kidneys were shot to pieces. And God gave them new kidneys. That even the, the specialist, the kidney specialist said, this is a walking miracle here. A walking miracle, brother. And, and yet another one died in my arms. An eight-year-old little girl with shot kidneys, and she died in my arms. Well, God, why didn't you save this one? Well, I don't, God doesn't need to explain himself. For whatever reason, he's allowed that to happen now. You know, we're, we're there, you know, under his, under his guard, under his protection, under his authority. And so he's our father. And I often say, you know, later on when I... When I die, when I get to heaven, I'm going to make the Lord a nice cup of coffee and I'm going to ask him all these <laughs> questions. You know, maybe I'll get the answers, maybe not. But you know, don't, don't need to question God. Just do it. Just, just trust. Just trust. Just get out there and do it. Ronnie, we appreciate you coming in and sharing. And for the benefit of our listeners who would like to hear more of this amazing story, The Miracle Zone in the Jungles of Borneo, um, you can get a copy of the book by going online to livingwatersvillage.com. That's livingwatersvillage.com. Ronnie Habor from Living Waters, thanks so much for dropping by and sharing, brother. Thanks for having me, Craig. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Somewhat innocuous sounding or obnoxious as the case may be sounding bit of music might seem to have come from some major Hollywood spectacle or maybe even serve as a great theme song for this show some days. But in fact, it is the theme from one of the best selling video games of all time, Call of Duty. And I've always marveled at those that will talk about what a wonderful teaching tool that computers can be or television and that children can watch a program like uh, Nat Geo and come back with all kinds of great facts and having expanded their horizons and understanding of life and the world and how engaging the computer can be as an educational tool and yet out of the very same mouths will come well there's no influence whatsoever of violent video games on children how can you dare even suggest such a thing well which is it going to be folks can media in particular television and interactive uh, uh, games and so forth can they teach children or are they not teachers at all 
Joining me now with some insights is Dr. Jane Anderson. She served for many years as a pediatrician at Mount Zion Center for UCSF. And uh, Dr. Anderson, always a delight and an education to have you join us on the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> what, what about this debate? I, I just I never have quite understood, Dr. Anderson, how we can, out of one side of our mouth, suggest that television and computers are a wonderful teaching tool, and the other one say that they at the same time have no influence on children who will spend sometimes hundreds of hours over the course of a month engrossed in violent video games that have no other purpose than racking up points killing people. Exactly. It's sort of why why do companies spend two point five, you know, million dollars for a thirty second commercial on the Super Bowl if they don't think it's going to influence our behavior. Precisely. So there, the interesting thing for me is that there is so much new information on brain research. And researchers are now using brain scanning tools such as MRIs to evaluate children and teenagers uh, before and after and sometimes during um, the time that they're playing video games to see what happens. So we now have real brain data that shows that areas of our brain that are linked to desensitization to violence are activated during violent video games. We have more longitudinal studies that show us that children who play more video games are more likely to engage in violent behavior. And it doesn't mean that every child who plays video games is going to end up more aggressive, but it certainly plays into the tendencies, and there are a lot of reasons for it. Um, violence uh, during video games is not just learned and demonstrated. It is repetitively practiced over and over again until you get it right. And then that violence is rewarded. So you get, um, you get to uh, go to higher levels or you get expanded tools of violence. So you get rewarded for your behavior. And, um, and so the violence becomes justified and it becomes, quote, fun. And then worse than that, it's what we call many of the games, like Call of Duty, Mortal Kombat, others, Doom. They are first-person player video games. In other words, when we think of Pac-Man, it was like take a, you know, take a joystick and make the you know, little Pac-Man guy move. Um, you weren't actually Pac-Man, but the first-person player games, you are actually the player, and you see the world through the player's eyes. And that's why um, some of the school shooters had never held guns before. The kids in, um, I believe it was Mississippi, had, in Pearl, Mississippi, that student had never held a gun before, but he'd practiced on video games, and so he was able to have direct hits to students who were running but he got them with one shot and killed them, which is, you know, better than most, you know, police agencies or soldiers can do. But well, he'd been practicing. Well, and we've seen cases where military, including our own, um, are, are extremely interested in talking to uh, potential recruits who have very high marks in video gaming because these same individuals who, as you point out, often have no experience shooting an actual weapon whatsoever, and yet when the gun is put into their hands for the first time, 
demonstrate remarkable levels of marksmanship. Why? Because the ability to load, reload, aim, and so forth, they've practiced all of that sometimes thousands and times over. I mean, in often cases, uh, Dr. Anderson, I would imagine just in terms of overall experience, albeit not with a real weapon, but still, their level of experience is equal to or exceeds even what the police get on the firing range. Oh, sure. I mean, there. Th- one of the studies is from 2004, so it's old now, but boys between 8 and 13 years of age were playing 13 hours a week of video games, and most of those are violent. So although not all video games are violent, 10 of the top 20 game sellers are violent. And it is a multi-billion dollar industry, $11.7 billion um, we're spending. So I always like to tease and say, don't tell me we don't have enough money to do X, Y, Z. Excellent point. You make reference to a number of these studies that are out there, the growing body of evidence that suggests that, of course, there's a connection to violence after they've seen and been programmed uh, by this kind of so-called entertainment. I'm curious to find out what the brainwave activity is showing. And most importantly, what needs to be the warning word here? Even after the heels of events like Sandy Hook, we're teaching our children that violence is entertainment. In real life, when we engage in wars that we do, we teach our children that that's the way adults settle disputes. And then when our kids grow up and turn the guns on us or act out violently against us, we wonder what happened to little Johnny that maybe because he wasn't breastfed as a child, he's acting this way. We've trained these kids to behave like this. Why are we as a society surprised? Rhetorical question. Better put, what can we who understand it and get it do to overcome all of this? We'll continue with more of our conversation with Dr. Jane Anderson as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So the um, five or six billion dollar a year video gaming industry says that their um, their entertainment has no influence on children and violent activity whatsoever. Of course, they would probably have um, upwards of five, six billion reasons why they would say that. Dr. Jane Anderson with us today with a bit contrarian insight on this topic. Dr. Anderson, you mentioned about this growing body of evidence, and I know there have literally been thousands of studies that have tied in uh, the the impact of prolonged exposure to violent video games and the degree to which children who have a history of that as a form of entertainment acting out in aggressive behavior involvement in a violent manner with the authority so on and so forth what's the response to all of this what should it be i mean we've been talking about this for years and years and years outside of parents waking up to certain realities is it time for the government to begin interceding here and saying you know what just like we won't allow kids to see certain classifications of movies we're not going to allow them to engage in certain classifications of violent video games well you know um as much as i'm a conservative politically and i don't like government intrusion generally um i think if we compare it to uh, just like you said you know if we compare it to like accessing alcohol or pornography or going into an x-rated movie i think we can set some limits on children and adolescents they are still under 
adult sort of authority and, and I hate to use the word control, but should be <laughs> under control. So I think, yes, you know, California tried it. We, they passed a law to uh, limit the um, access of teenagers to <clears throat> the most mature rating or the most violent um, video games, but it was defeated by the Supreme Court as a right to um, freedom of speech. Um, but I think if we can limit, you know, sale of, of pornography, I think we can limit the sale of violent video games. But I really would encourage parents, um, until that time, <laughs> uh, they really have to be aware of um, the, the violence in the video games. And a lot of times it's not noticeable at the lower levels. If they're sitting next to their, you know, uh, teenager, they need to see, well, what's at the higher levels? And I want to really point out to all parents that boys are so susceptible. Uh, the way the boys' brains develop and their exposure to, to testosterone in utero at 12 weeks gestation, their brains develop differently, and they learn by competition and repetition, and that's exactly what video games are. So they're much more likely to become addicted and be influenced by the video games. So for everybody, limit them, but especially for boys. And, you know, even parents of toddlers out there, the parents of toddlers who are listening and you're probably thinking, oh, well, you know, my kid's not affected by this. You know, you're handing them your iPad, your iPhone to keep them entertained, you know, while you're in the car or at the doctor's office, and you are teaching them that screen time is entertaining and you're not doing what we, we used to do as parents, talking to them while you're, you know, in the car and playing word games and I spy out the window and, you know, helping them be creative and problem solve and when they're at home, get outdoors and do things outdoors. There's so much that of life that our children are missing out on because um, they're, they're indoors playing video games. So I'd really encourage parents to be aware, keep computers, video games, consoles, everything out of the kids' bedrooms. We have documented evidence that children who have computers and TVs and games and stuff in their bedrooms, they do worse in school, they have more problems with obesity, they sleep less, they have more behavioral problems. It's like there are things that parents can do. You know, and the other thing that dawns on me is we were sharing the notion of not engaging children in, in the healthy way, that, that kids of my generation, we had no choice. None of this stuff existed in those days. I think we barely had the electric light. Uh, but we, we tend to then train kids to be very inward-looking as opposed to outward-looking. There, there's no sense of wonder and awe about the world around them. It's all limited to, you know, the 13-inch diagonally measured screen of the computer in front of them. And, you know, I, I think that, that that, you know, not only leads to a tremendous degree of of, of a false, distorted, sort of just two-degree, uh, two-dimensional, rather, view of the world, uh, in spite of the best efforts of 3D. But, but then, too, Dr. Anderson, I mean, isn't there a degree to which there is a chemical high that kids get off of this, not just as they're advancing and they're making more points and they're able to, you know, engage in, in, in more points for more kills and things of this sort. But aren't we kind of there's got to be sort of a, a brain chemical reaction to engaging in this violence through a video game? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, that's that's where addictions come in. And there are definitely, you know, teenagers who, and, and young, especially young, young men, young men who are addicted to video games. And the addiction comes from the pleasurable response. And unfortunately, there's, there's like a gate in our brain, and it's only going to let through certain sensations. So 
for instance, if I'm sitting here, I'm not paying attention necessarily to where my feet are or what smells are in the room or whatever. The brain um, determines what is sensational, what is new, what is innovative and creative, and it lets those sensations through, which is why you have to have sort of different, more creative, worse violence at the higher levels using worse vet weapons because that keeps that excitement and that adrenaline going and it allows your brain to take in that sensation and then it stimulates your dopaminergic system and um, that's what contributes to this need for more and more. No, just as much as we see the same thing played out in real life that oftentimes children who engage or, or adults who engage in violent behavior then do new, need to go higher and higher and higher in order to re- receive sort of the, the same kind of uh, chemicals and in, in, uh, enjoyment out that's of it. That's exactly right. So it ought to be easy for parents to connect the dots, folks. So let's start connecting the dots. Now, urging our government at the state level and federal level to start putting bans and restrictions and tighter controls on this, age restrictions, things of that sort is very important. But I guess at the end of the day, uh, Dr. Anderson, it really comes down to the parents, doesn't it? It really does. And the video game industry does have ratings on the video game. So pay attention, you know, look on the box. You know, does it say E for everyone or does it say M for mature audiences only? And it will say on there if it's sexual, if it's violent, if it's, you know, um, if there's foul language, it'll say on there. So look and read. Um, Teenagers tell you their parents might set rules for the TV viewing, but they don't set rules for video game playing. Well, set some rules and set some guidelines. Meet with the teenagers. Hey, what do you think you're doing when you're, you're playing video games? What, what activities are you not participating in? Oh, you know, you're not outdoors exercising and playing on a team. And boys, by the way, learn so much about the real world by playing on a sports team. So, you know, get your, and girls do too, but boys more so, get your guys out there playing, um, you know, reading, being creative. You know, it used to be kids would go outdoors and create the rules to a game, and they'd be creative. You know, you be this, I'll be that. And now it's just, you know, I'll sit here and sit side by side with my friend, and we'll both, you know, play video games together. It's like, no, there are so many wonderful alternatives, and the evidence is overwhelming in so many arenas of life, whether it's the physical development of the child, the emotional development, the cognitive development, even developing empathy and compassion, our brains develop that by looking at someone else's facial expression. Well, you can't see those changes when you're in front of a screen. How far we've come from the day and age when I was a kid and they couldn't get us to come back indoors and today we can't get them to go outdoors. Our thanks to Dr. Jane Anderson for being with us in this segment of Lifeline. that's going to do it for this edition of lifeline thanks so much for being with us and if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend grab a copy of the lifeline podcast simply log on to kfax.com that's kfax.com for the lifeline podcast our producer is wanda sanchez i'm craig roberts till next time round remember just don't keep the faith get out there and share it and make it a great evening so long Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.